This is a Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles, presented by Golden Tire, Tech One Designs, Westside Honda, TransCanada Motorsports, Roy Wharton Suspension Systems, and 204 Skate Shop. Motocross news from around the globe, but mostly between Emerson and Brandon. We're not experts over here, but we've got microphones. Check out BigMXRadio.com for more content. Welcome to the Big MX Podcast Show, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles, 204 Skate Shop, Golden Tire, Transcanner Motorsports, Roy Borton Suspension Systems, and new for this week, we've got PRMX, a motocross distribution company out of Quebec, Canada. Uh, I am your host, as usual, Brad Gebhardt, and with me on the line, the guru of motocross, He's got the entire archive at his fingertips at his house. Every single magazine from the 70s on up. All of those videos that you enjoy on YouTube. Everyone subscribes. Even the biggest pros. I see non-stop these, these uh, likes and comments from some of the, the who's who, the legends of the sport. I'm talking about none other than Tony Blazer, number nine, 291 in your program, number one in your heart. How's it going, Tony? Well, Brad, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you taking some time with us tonight after a long, hard day at the car dealership. Uh, you're sitting down with the Big MX Show. Two podcasts in six days. DMXS had your first. I get seconds with you, uh, I, I, but I'm happy to have them. I'm uh, gr- glad to have you on the show. What's it like to be so sought after to get two podcasts done in uh, in a matter of a couple of days? Well, I'm killing it to use a Pulpit Max reference. Fair enough. Absolutely. Uh, Devin, uh, famous for that one. Uh, you're absolutely killing it. Uh, I really liked the interview. Uh, last week I had uh, Mike Sweeney on. We uploaded that on, I believe it was Thursday, and uh, to which you, uh, I said that you were next, not even knowing that uh, you had done the DMX show uh, that very same week. So uh, glad to have you on. Uh, I'm sure those who listen to this podcast are more than likely also uh, listening to the bigger podcasts like Pulp and DMXS. So uh, some of this might be um, a repeater for them, but nevertheless, I hope uh, that we can draw out some some extra info from you, get some great stories, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all good when it comes to uh, Tony Blazer because I think we're all a big fan. Well, thank you very much. I, like I said, I appreciate you having me on, uh, and I'll, we'll try to make it interesting for everybody here. Excellent. So um, let's turn back the clocks to where um, this collection really started. Um, you're you're an avid fan. You're like you wanted a bike as as a as a kid, uh, but it wasn't until high school when uh, you you really started to uh, collect and stuff like that. Um, how did you go about collecting these things? Was it all subscriptions right off the hop? Yeah, initially, yes. It was. Uh, I just started subscribing to the magazines. Uh, um, like a, you know, like the early 80s, 82, 83, 84, somewhere in that range, I started subscribing to them. And then uh, once I started really getting into it, I was hooked and just added more and more subscriptions. Eventually, I was getting, you know, all the ones that were out at the time, uh, which was like uh, motocross, motocross action, dirt bike, dirt rider. Um, there was another, Super Motocross was another one there in the 80s for a while. There's a lot of good magazines at the time. 
And uh, as far as uh, a percentage of, of your collection that you've made available to uh, social media, because, of course, we all follow you at Tony Blazer on Instagram and at Tony Blazer uh, on uh on, on Twitter, um, I, I've been a follower for quite some time. I got my dad uh, hooked on the stuff. He he like he'll retweet it back at me as if I haven't seen it, uh, which is hilarious. But uh, everyone's really enjoyed uh, having your posts to look at, whether it be the ads of the day, the uh, the mystery rider, which I almost never get right, uh, and uh, as well as uh, the the other ones, your your regulars, as well as just random tidbits that you pull out. Uh, what percentage of, of your collection have you released to us so far? Well, if you count just social media, um, I would guess maybe ten percent. Um, oh, I, I do I I do make all of it available. Well, I wouldn't say all of it, but a good bit of it available on like my Flickr account. I have a Flickr account, and I've actually put most of the stuff up there. Um, probably at least half. Um, up there and it's organized, uh, you know, by albums, by writer. So if you want to search stuff, uh, that's the place to go. If you want to see everything, there's about, I think 22,000 photographs up there. Um, and just today actually it hit 8 million views. Uh, so wow. a lot of people do go to that. Yeah. I average about 30,000 hits a day onto my Flickr, uh, the, the motocross vault Flickr. So if you just, uh, check that out, you could spend hours on all that stuff. So that's probably at least half of what I have. I, I checked my, the hard drive where I have all the photos on, and I have about 50,000 photos at this point. Um, and there's, I don't know, 20-something 20, 20 thousand that's actually up there on the Flickr account. Fair enough. Now, the first time that I was uh, made, made was made aware for, of you was uh, through through um, YouTube. And, uh, like, searching up old uh, motocross races, like, I'm a moto nerd. Uh, before even I started watching Pulp or listening to Pulp, um... It was it was all about uh, if there wasn't anything on TV, there had to be an old race that I haven't seen. Uh, having only gotten into the sport in, uh, in two thousand, really following it uh, at the uh, tender age of twelve years old, um, there's a lot of motocross history that I didn't watch, and uh, unfortunately, the majority that I have watched was one guy winning. He had a big number four on the front of his bike. Uh, so uh, to see some <laughs> of these heroes from the past, I started looking up uh, some of your videos, and um, like. Where where did what possessed you to start uh, releasing those? And uh, as far as uh, how you do it chronologically, um, how how did you go about deciding how you wanted to go about that? Um, originally, what started it was um, like yourself. I was a fan of Steve's stuff on Pulp, um, and he was doing some uh, classic commentaries where he was going back and watching some of these old races and having like Timmy Ferry or you know um, I don't know some of the other guys do a commentary of the race. Yeah, you know, I love watching those. Them now. They're great listens. They're really, really cool to watch. And I said, you know, he, um, he was going through a few of them and I, and I hit him up on email and said, look, you know, I have like boxes of these old tapes of these races. Would you be interested in any, any of them? And I asked him which ones. And, uh, that, that's what actually got me started. Cause I had them all in my basement in, in boxes. And, uh, I, I had, I actually hadn't watched most of them in probably over a decade. Um, and that got me started. So then I had to get some equipment to convert the VHS tapes to a digital format. And from there, I burned them to actual DVDs, and I mailed them to Steve. And that's how I got started. Now, the next step was once I actually had them uh, converted into a DVD, 
um, I thought, well, you know, well, maybe it'd be cool to let other people see this. So that's when I created the motocross vault the first time, which was probably, I guess, probably three, four years ago now. Um, and I actually had uploaded tons and tons of races and I ended up getting shut down by, uh, uh, some copyright claims by Duke video, um, on so a bunch of GP races and stuff. Um, and then I had to start all over again. So actually I don't even have all the stuff up again that I had the first time yet. I've been doing it a little bit at a time. It's time consuming. For sure. Actually, that's one of the questions that I had. What all happened with that? Like you had an extensive library up and I was, I was literally going through it year by year. I loved watching the early 90s stuff because, uh, first of all, I find not only the commercials hilarious to watch, the hair is ridiculous, but there was a lot of parody back then. There was a lot of guys, different guys winning races. And, uh, of course, me being a two-stroke fanatic, it's all two-strokes out there. So, um, like, what all happened with uh, you getting shut down almost what would have been, uh, was, it, was it two years ago already? Yeah, it was about two years ago. Um, yeah, because it, it was such a bummer because I had literally spent thousands of hours probably uh, ripping them and categorizing them, all this work. And because um, what started originally was I was thinking, you know, it's hard to find this stuff. Like, I knew I had it. It wasn't really out there. You can't buy these races from the 90s. They're not available for the most part. So I thought it'd be cool to put them up. So I had loaded them all to YouTube, and, and that's actually, again, like what, what kind of got people interested in that stuff. And then there were some races. Um, Duke Video, which is a company in Europe, I think they're based in the UK, they had the rights to a bunch of the Motocross's Nations videos. I had VHS tapes of them from the 80s and stuff um, that I bought over the years. And I upload, I had one point had almost all the Motocross's Nations up from, you know, even uh, about like 82 through like 2000. I pretty much stopped with that stuff, you know, around 2001 or so because I didn't want to, I was trying not to step on anybody's toes. I really only wanted to post stuff that wasn't readily available. My, my intention was never to, you know, cost somebody money or in any way infringe on any kind of, uh, you know, copyrights of somebody who is actually actively, you know, selling this stuff. Um, yeah. I was just trying to, to fill sure. a void there for people who wanted to find like, you know, the 96, for instance, the amazing 1996 Motocross Nations where Jeremy and uh, Steve Lamson and Emig uh, brought back the victory to the U.S. In, in Spain. You can't find that race anywhere. It doesn't exist. I, I ended up having to buy a copy, um, get a copy from of a Spanish version and have it converted. I paid to send the DVD out to Washington, had it converted into a, a format that could be read in our stuff. It, mm -hmm. it was a big to-do. Um, and I was just doing this stuff to try and, you know, like, again, put it out there. Uh, but then um, I started getting these copyright infringements from Duke, and I started pulling stuff down based on that. Um, like, for instance, I think it's maybe 96. For some reason, they have the rights to the 1996 motocross season here in the U.S. I guess at some point they offered it on a, on a videotape or something. So they would put these warnings up, and then I would pull them down. That was not a big deal, but um, the GP stuff, they I guess there's a couple of levels where they'll give you just a warning if it's like not a big deal, and there's ones where they say that, oh, we have the rights, nobody else can have this, and they'll put like a strike on your account. And within the course of like two days, I had like three strikes, and if you had three strikes, um, boom, they just they clip your account, everything is gone, you're shut out of it. Even now, I can't get into my YouTube that I had before that's tied actually to my name. 
um, originally, it you know, it, it just doesn't exist anymore. So overnight, all that work was gone. It was really a bummer. No kidding. I think I remember literally, um, like almost the day it happened, because I remember going through those videos. I probably should have been studying my uh, university textbooks and uh the next day i had to go study my university textbooks because there were no more videos up there at least not long ones i think one of the nicest things about what you release is uh first of all you leave the commercials in which is both comedic comical and um just gives gives the the uh, us uh, kind of a, a view into what type of uh, ads were being ran back then. Of course, even in Canada, we don't get a lot of those ads that riders do. Uh, we, 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 know we get a lot of uh, local uh, advertisement during uh, Supercrosses, um, even back then. And uh, as well as uh, the fact that you've got all of the content there. There's a lot of uh, people who do release the races and it's only the main event, whereas uh, you tend to uh, release races where you get to see how... Uh, how the the, the the sausage was made uh, like all, from the very beginning to the end so uh, I very much appreciate that the fact that and uh, you keep those commercials in there from now on my friend <laughs> yeah I, I like looking at those too I think it's cool to see you know Jeremy doing a commercial for you know 100 collect with uh, you know Alyssa Milano or whatever it's it's you know cool to the period that it was done you know yeah even some of the old ESPN commercials are pretty funny, you know. I actually yeah. like those things. I don't bother fast forwarding them. So, right. Well, ESPN. Uh, there's actually. Uh, I'm not. Sure. You're an NFL fan, and uh, there's an ESPN commercial with um, for Sports Center of uh, uh, Rich Eisen from way back, where he's like they they, they pretend like he's in a. a, a, a heavyweight fight and they're like kind of like cutting them and like the all all that fun stuff and like I didn't even know his career went that far back uh, which is always cool to see so uh, yeah it's great content and uh, we we really appreciate it I think that's why I wanted to have you on the show because uh, um, who knows the sport better than you well thanks very much I mean I'm still in the process of uploading it I think I'm up to 03 now and I have uh I've been, I've been lucky that uh, some other people on the internet have reached out to me and uh, they provided me with some traces I didn't have because I actually stopped taping the VHS tapes around 2005 or so. You know, mm-hmm. VHS were kind of going out of style. So I have them up to about 08 or 09 now. I think I'm, I'm going to eventually get them all back up there. I've tried to be careful. Like you'll notice there's some races that are not up there now that were before and anything that was, you know, the last thing I want to do is have it get clipped again. So, I've been real careful there. I don't have the GP stuff there. I don't put the motocross this nation stuff up. So I'm hoping that uh, I can keep it up there for everybody to enjoy and, and not get shut down again. <laughs> no doubt. Absolutely. Well, I try and keep on top of it as much as I can for those who uh, who don't already follow uh, you on or subscribe to you on on YouTube. It's uh, the Motocross Vault, uh, pretty much endless uh, supply of motocross knowledge. Uh, if you want to be a student of the sport, go ahead and uh, subscribe, watch those videos. Uh, it's a great tool. Um, as far as uh, like, like we've had, I've seen you have some conversations and contact with some of the legends of the sport. Uh, Carmichael is commenting on your stuff daily. Same thing with McGrath. I, I get uh, like exhilaration when I get a comment from one of those guys. I'm sure it's old hat for you. But uh, like, who would uh, who? First of all, who's surprised you uh, of the motocross industry as a moto nerd? That uh, guy who absolutely knows a lot about it or is interested in all this old stuff. And also, if you could give us a top three uh, biggest moto nerds in the industry, um, like that you've found so far. 
Um, I would say the number one guy that really is uh, kind of like us as far as a fan and really knows the sport is David Villeman. Um, I always enjoy going back and forth with him. Um, he's great, like on the mystery rider stuff, or if you need to know uh, some obscure thing that happened at a GP in 93, he's the guy I usually go to. He seems to have a really deep interest in the sport and is really a fan of it. Um, some of the other guys... Uh, McGrath and, and Carmichael will occasionally uh, comment on the stuff, but I don't think they're really um, into the sport to the same level that uh, you know the, the average super fan is. You know, maybe because they lived it. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of the riders don't aren't as deeply into it. Uh, I mean, McGrath actually he reached out to me to uh, provide him with a copy of all his races for his kids because uh, he didn't have any of them. You know, it's so amazing to think that they lived through this. Um, accomplished so much and he didn't have you know, like records of any of it. So I, I think a lot of the guys, maybe they're caught up in the moment and they don't, they don't have the same, uh, you know, re- reverence for it at the time as, you know, you and I do as a fan. Um, as far as like, who else would be a top three? Or, you mean people in the industry or just riders specifically? Do you think people or, in the industry? Like I, I know there's, I'm, I'm sure there's a guy, a guys who never became, uh, at the top echelon of the sport who, uh, just, like no matter how high their personal position got, whether it be a, a team manager, gear guy, whatever, uh, they still uh, feast for the sport the way you and I do. That it's uh, it's it's cool to hear, and I, I'd be interested to find out who uh, who pays attention or, or who has that well of knowledge uh, within the pits. I, you know, if I had to pick three guys, um, the three guys that I obviously I interact with, but honestly have the greatest knowledge, I think, and appreciation are. Uh, Jason Wygant, uh, Jason Thomas, and Steve Mathis. They're all great guys to bench race with. They have a vast knowledge of, uh, you know, the, the history of the sport and have an appreciation for it. And a love for it, too, I think. Um, of course, somebody like Davey Coons or somebody as well, but uh, I don't really talk to him about that stuff that much. I, I've spoken to him a few times, but um, I, I would list those three guys as probably, uh, you know, pretty much they're in the industry, but I think at the, at the core they're motor nerds like you and I. For sure, um, as of your like, you, you post mo- like a lot of the pictures that you post. I love the the, the old ads. Um, who over what company over the years had the best ads in terms of um, bringing a, a different look to uh, the way they uh, present their stuff, as well as some uh, who had some of those iconic ads that you really like to uh, bring forth for those who uh, didn't see them in uh, magazine form. Um. In terms of, you talking about like all time, or you talking about somebody doing something? All time. Uh, I tell you, if I had to rate some all time ads, I would rate. Uh, I love the Oakley stuff from the eighties. Um, yeah. The Oakley factory pilot ads from the early eighties with like Mark Barnett and Johnny O'Meara and uh, Jeff Ward and stuff. Those are awesome. Uh, there's like one I um, have of Mark Barnett like next to an SR seventy one. It's just iconic. It, it, it looks just as cool today. It doesn't look dated at all. Um, I love some of the stuff that Fox did. Like obviously, like the Rick Johnson Thinker ad was mm-hmm. again iconic. Those are awesome. Um, there's another another Oakley ad that was really great. Was the one with Donald Garcia with Rick Johnson. He's got um, like he's all painted white and he's got like stripes on his face and he's, he's, talking, he's talking about like night vision. He's wearing some Oakley. I think it's some clear blades. But um, they had some great ads uh, back in the '80s. Um, as far as me today. Um, I do like a lot of the new Fox stuff. I, I like the stuff that Fox did in the, um, 
uh, in the early 90s, the Dream On ads. I don't know if you remember those as well. Those are pretty cool. Yeah, like, no, I've checked some of those out. I didn't like the direction that Fox had, say, 05 through like 2011. And then they got back to some more of the solid colors. Like they went really just some weird prints and a lot of really busy looking gear. I like that both them and like Shift, pretty much every brand has gone back to like solid block colors uh, that are, um, it just, it just, I don't know. It just looks, it looks better uh, rather than having a really busy looking jersey. I agree with you. Like the stuff uh, like Josh Hill was wearing and I think 09, the Fox stuff, that, that was, it was like crazy, save reads and stuff. It was a little too much. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's always strange to me. It's funny, you know, when you look at something uh, that, that we wear on a motocross track, like, you know, pink zebra stripes and stuff, it, you know, in everyday life, it would look ridiculous. Yep. And even in motocross, there's a fine line between cool and, and kind of just silly looking to me. Yeah. And I don't know why it is, but you know it when it's like the sniff test, you know it when you see it. And you look at like some of the stuff Barsha was wear, wearing this year and you go, wow, that's maybe that crosses that line a little bit. Uh, but you, then you look at something like what Bubble was wearing in the early 2000s with the the pink zebra stripes, and somehow to me that works. And I I don't I can't put my thumb on why it is that one looks really ridiculous and one looks cool, but it does. It's just the way it is, at least to me. Totally, I absolutely agree. Um, a lot of times it has uh, has to do with um, like whether the, or not the rider is winning in that gear uh but a lot of times they like, just like uh, there's you're right uh, uh like pink or fuchsia uh with uh with the zebra print that uh that james wore early in his career or even uh like um never really been a fan of orange gear but for whatever reason orange gear on ricky carmichael on a kawasaki just looked right it did. It looked great. I, I'm like not it. sure why. Uh, same thing uh, with uh, some of the gear that uh, Ezra Lusk wore with uh, when he when he switched to Shift. Uh, did, not a huge fan of the of that helmet that he wore. I know you guys talked about that on the uh, the MXS show. The uh, the M2R helmet that was uh, it was wide. It was very ugly. But yeah, like it's 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 interesting to see how gear has progressed uh, over the years as well from from not only colors but materials. Um, that it gets to a question I have uh, a little bit down the road, but um, um, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, um, who is your favorite broadcast team? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a tough one. I, I would say um, I really liked this year. I, I liked Grant Langston, and I loved Weege in the Nationals. I thought I thought Grant brought a lot of energy and uh, kind of a, a fun um, outlook to everything. I really like what they did this year a lot. I thought it was a great, great team uh, between those two. Uh, I know a lot of, I liked David Bailey at the time. Um, I think a lot of people think back quite fondly of that. And when I go back and watch some of those old races, uh, I don't know that it holds up as well, at least to me anyway. You know, they're, they're still entertaining and they're fun to watch. Um but I actually don't think they're like all time the best. You know, him with Art Ekman, Art was always making ridiculous gaffes and you know, calling David Pingree David Pingram or something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, I would actually put even a lot of people bust on like uh, Ralph Shaheen and Emig and those guys. I think they do a great job personally. I, 
I like the teams we have now. I actually think they're better than what we had in the old days. Maybe that's blasphemy, but um, I think they do a great job. I think what people have to remember, as far as uh, when, when, as far as when it comes to Ralph Shaheen, um, Ralph Shaheen does his broadcast so that if you've never watched Supercross in your entire life, you now know what's going on. For those of us who've watched semis and heat races and LCQs and main events for the last 15, 20, 30 years, we know the drill, we know what's going on, but most of what he says is not for us. I could probably watch a Supercross with the sound off and and do a, do a half-decent call on what's going on on the track. He's there to provide basically what's going on on the track for your brand new listener because having brand new listeners that stick around makes the sport bigger and that's what puts more money in the sport that's what puts more in like what's allowing just the sport to get bigger so um for those who rip on uh ralph shaheen um it's just misplaced because he's not there to um really give uh your like your average super fan some tidbit of information that no one knows about because if he was the one giving that out it wouldn't be all that special of a nugget what emig is there for is those uh insider tidbits or the 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 knowledge that of a, of a racer that uh, can be put in place during a race or like what's going on through a, a rider's head possibly throughout a race but for the most part i think uh the guys now um, although maybe they don't know as much about the guys in the back of the class, uh, not like uh, Art Ekman really did all that much back then either. Um, but like they, I think they do a great job of uh, of, of calling the races, and uh, it's it's it honestly it, it's not a step down whatsoever. With with respect yeah. to Art Ekman and, and and all the 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 guys who came before, um, I take or leave Cameron Steele, but either way. You know, you know, it's funny you mentioned. I was going to say Cameron Steele. If you want to see, you know, terrible, watch watch the Robbie Floyd Cameron Steele years in like oh three oh four. Those were just god awful. Or even worse was there was uh, Jerry ninety four was oh my god ninety four was the absolute worst year because you had Jerry Bernardo in the pit screaming oh, like yeah. an idiot. And um, I mean, a couple times you do those interviews. I remember going up, you know, interviewing Jeremy after he got off the track, and Jeremy looks at him like he's you know, like, what is this dude's deal? And yeah. uh, he was, he had like on ESPN two you had uh, oh my god John Kernan and um, and at one point when G, when Bradshaw retired for like the first three or four races in I think ninety five he actually did the color commentary and I am like the world's biggest Bradshaw fan but my god it was a train wreck the man does not belong behind the mic oh um, that, that was bad no different uh, you want to hear uh, a bad. Um, uh, color commentary and I and I don't mean to uh, speak ill of anyone but uh, if you want to watch a 1999 uh, Canadian National um, the broadcasts are put on by uh, Guaranteed MX that's Ryan Gauld uh, he, he uh, is a Canadian um, moto media guy up in Canada and uh, he's got some Ross Rollerball Peterson of all guys did the color and um, it's painful Boy, is it painful! Uh, just, just, <laughs> I was say, just, just listen. I was listening to a little bit of your uh, uh, can, the Canadian national coverage this year uh, yeah. because you know with Alessi and them going up there, and just listening to the difference in how they cover the race. There's a lot more. Uh, 
a lot more enthusiasm. Those guys are like really getting excited. It's almost like listening to uh, a totally different broadcast, and you get listening to you know Paul Malin overseas and in, in the GPs or yeah. you know uh, Weez and them here. It's so funny how different it is up there. Well, I think that's mainly because they actually do it from a, a studio booth. I've gone to, a, I was at the Regina National, and uh, um, basically the, the Canadian guys, uh, bless their hearts, they do their broadcast from uh, what would normally be the, uh, the announcer's booth at a, uh, at, a, at a local race, and uh, they basically, they watch the race, they don't watch it on a monitor, they watch it all from one vantage point, and you know what, they, they, they get crazy about stuff, they're, they're calling the race. They see the battle between the the 40th place rider and the 39th place rider, and they're calling it like it's the lead. And uh, yeah, it's again maybe just a little bit in, like uh, uh, nuance of Canadian moto. But uh, those guys, Mark Travers and uh, Brian Coster, have been doing it for oh good better part of 15 years. And uh, yeah, I, I don't see those guys getting pushed out of that position anytime soon. So. Uh, yeah, that's those are the, the the first races that I watched. In fact, when when I started watching motocross in 1999, I was fairly certain that um, the fastest racer in the world was Blair Morgan. Well, I can understand that's all a matter of uh, where you are <laughs> and what your uh, experience is there. Totally, yeah, they definitely they sound more like a, more like a local track. The, the enthusiasm you'd have at the guy announcing the race at the track. You're right. Yeah, it's a little who more, actually uh, knows who the guys but, are. In the, Exactly. They, they, they're definitely, you know, into it, which is cool. It's just different. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just, you can tell they have a, a passion for it, which is pretty cool, actually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, like, those guys do a great job. It was nice enough uh, for the, of them to uh, let me hang out in the booth with them for a bit this year uh, at the Regina National, which was a total mutter. I found the only spot that didn't have mud, and it happened to be up in the booth. Um, quick little... Um, Pick your brain uh, as far as a dream team. Now, you're the team owner. Uh, you get to pick two 252 stroke guys, two 125 two stroke guys. You get to pick one team manager and two lead mechanics, as well as the bikes and gear from any particular year, any guys, any like any combination. Uh, who's who's your team? Wow. Okay. That's, that's a lot of questions. Okay. So you want uh, all-time two, two 250 guys and two 125 guys, right? Yeah, not only, and, and what all bikes right. are they on and uh, and what gear are they running with? Are we running Supercross and outdoors or just one or the other? Uh, it's it's uh, it, they, go, they go both. And also uh, the whole team is traveling around uh, without flying. They're, they're in the motorhome. Uh, for, <laughs> they're traveling in box vans. Um, okay, well, I mean, 250, I would definitely have to go uh, Jeremy McGrath. And Ricky Carmichael, um, those would be my two guys. Okay. Um, for 125s, ooh, that's a tough one. And I can't reuse them, so I would say James Stewart. Um, and if I had him in his prime, Steve Lamson. I'd probably take Lamson. And, I was, uh, was going to say you'd probably take Lamson. Uh, Lamson and Stewart, two of the fastest guys I ever saw riding a 125. Um, and you asked me, what was the other thing? What, Who, what, who's managing your team? And uh, what kind of bikes are you running? Uh, you can pick bikes from any particular uh, time, era, uh, what what have you. Ooh, okay, well, um, Dave Arnold will probably be my team manager. Okay. Um, uh, bikes, that's tough. I mean, because you have to figure it's not really fair to have a modern bike go against an old one, but um, 
Wow, that's tough. Nine ninety six CR two fifty. If I'm running two strokes, um, we probably run the two fifty CR. And if I had to pick a one twenty five, I'd go probably the ninety six uh, CR one twenty five Lampson Road. Okay, so you're 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 basically your team Honda. Uh, you've got yep. two team Honda teammates from that particular year. Um, yeah. So uh, and they performed extremely well. I'm surprised you didn't pull anyone from the '80s. Um, I myself, when I did this with uh, with my usual co-host, I had I had Ron Machine on my 125. Um, but uh, yeah, that's cool. And uh, as far as uh, as far as gear, uh, what company are you going with? Ah, uh, can I? Do we have to say the same gear all throughout the team? Uh, no. You can pick different gear for each guy. Well, I mean, I guess if I had to keep it simple, I'd definitely go with, I like the Fox stuff. Uh, although I'd like the 95 Fox stuff better for uh, the Team Honda guys. Yeah. The first, like when they went to the, the Red Rider gear, I love that. It's awesome. Um, and the one, and then I love the 92 AXO stuff, so I'd go with that. Like the, the orange uh, stuff Bradshaw wore is one of my all-time favorites, too. Um, that you wore as well. Yeah, I do. I have a set of them still. I love that stuff. I still, I actually, I, I had a set of that Red Rider Fox stuff, and I, I gave it away to a friend of mine years ago. I don't know what that guy was thinking. Like, I don't know now, I totally regret it. I had a set of the 94 Jeremy McGrath Sinasalo stuff, too, and I gave that away like a moron. You don't realize at the time you're going to want this stuff when you're an old man 20 years later. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, my regular co-host uh, was quite the amateur phenom growing up. Uh, Chris Mellon, he uh, he runs 204 Skate Shop out in Southwark, Manitoba. He was actually sponsored by Cinesalo in 1993. Um, he received, him and his brother, uh, basically uh, they're about 12 months apart, so they received them as a package deal, received a, a letter saying in 1993, you are now sponsored. Uh, teammates with Jeremy McGrath and uh, although they didn't get free gear they got a, a special discount that basically allowed them to uh, purchase as much gear as they needed to and uh, those guys have uh, just about as many sets of that gear as you can think of and uh, very much cherished to them as many colors of the rainbow as you can think of in terms of uh, what they were wearing but uh, definitely it's not something that they'd be uh, giving away at any time. It was really cool. And th that gear, I don't know. I, like you said, we said earlier, uh, the gear had a lot of different colors going on. Uh, a lot of times the pants almost never matched the jersey. Uh, but for some yep. reason it just looked right. It's a, I, you're right. Because like Jeremy would wear like the white pants with like this jersey that had like a red center and then blue sleeves and it really was this crazy kaleidoscope of colors but somehow it worked i, I don't know it's, it's again it's like sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and it's a fine line there and i know the guys they try to hit it every year with the designs and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't right yeah it's funny though because a lot of those times like it's it's some of them like the the gear it doesn't look bad for that particular year but going forward you're like whoa if they came out with that now it would just be puke but a lot of those times like with the the gear that really hit the nail on the head Jeremy McGrath could ro roll out with that gear today and uh, I'm not too sure how his new sponsor would feel about it but either way it, it would just it would look right it, it still looks modern it doesn't look dated uh, and if it does it, it, it still looks like it could be passable like uh, I find that that retro stuff I know Thor is now doing kind of like a a, um, a retro look kind of like the old um 
yeah, the factory Honda stuff. And I, we've seen a couple of different companies do that over the years. Uh, O'Neill this year having a couple of different throwback uh, uniform uh, gear. Uh, going back as far as like they had some almost some 70s looking stuff and then years previous they had some kind of 80s looking stuff it's cool to see all those uh, old colors start to come back and uh, uh, gear brands looking into um, what worked in the past to uh, have some success on today's market yeah and some of that stuff works great I remember in 09 Fox had like uh, the retro look with it was like the orange and yellow that they ran when they were like motocross box in the late seventies. And yep. that stuff still looks cool now, you know, but then other stuff you see from like the early nineties or whenever, you know, it should stay there. It should be left in the rear view mirror. Totally. You know, I, the Fox. Yeah. The, the, a lot of the stuff they pull out, you know, where a Fox runs a retro thing or something, it, it still looks good now. I mean, you can pull out a set of that uh, red, white and blue stuff that Rick Johnson wore in 86. And I think it still looks every bit as cool now as it did then uh you know but you look at some of this like the fast boy stuff emic had in 91 with like the barbed wire fence on his back of his pants and stuff and it's like oh my god what was he thinking you know or like, even uh <laughs> was, the the retro stuff that the bradshaw bradshaw throwback stuff from 2003 or 04 04 uh, when they had the blue on Stewart and the red with the spider web on uh, on Carmichael, Carmichael, yeah, that was hot. It still looks good. It does. It's like it's you know some of that stuff holds up. You know, a good design is a good design, no matter when it's you know when it's out. For sure. Now, uh, before we get into a couple of the you know, the bikes that you yourself owned, I'm going to uh, pose this one question to you. It's not going to be easy to answer. You got one day with any factory rider on works bikes. Where are you riding, and who are you riding with? Ooh, ooh, and I can I can ride their bike. You're saying I get to go. You ride get with to. Them? Well, it's going to be matching. Uh, they have one. You have one on on works bikes. Wow. It, well, if I had to choose, oh my gosh, that's tough. That is a tough one. Because <laughs> um, you know, if I had to sit there and say I was going to ride with one guy. Is he in his prime, or we're riding now? No, you can get in the time machine and go back to '96 and ride with McGrath if you want to. Yeah, I would probably. I would love to go ride with David Bailey in '85 and ride that. The last of the real Honda works, like the '85 RC 250. Even though I've ridden plenty of old bikes now, I had a couple of '83 uh, CR 480s and stuff, and riding them now is very eye-opening. It's it's you know not nearly as awesome as you might imagine it. Um, to be, but I would love to experience that bike, and that, that was, you know, the bike dreams are made of. And I would love to ride with David again before he got hurt. That would be awesome. Absolutely. If, if there's anyone that you could, uh, like if if you really put in some laps with, that would be one of the guys who, uh, especially for for riders now, like there's really not a lot of footage on how amazing that guy was on a bike. There's a lot of photos and whatnot, but there really isn't a ton of. Uh, as far as video and, and to really show off uh, just just how talented he truly was. The little professor um, did it right. Yeah, it's amazing to see. You know, you got to figure when you watch some of those guys riding in the early 80s, you know, the tracks were changing so much over such a short amount of time. You know, the difference between a track from 1981 and a track from 86 is like, you know, night and day. Oh. And those guys were having to figure it out on the fly. They had no practice tracks, most of them, and they're, you know, they just one week it triples 110 feet. The next week it might be 70 feet. <laughs> you know, they're just having to wing it. So, you know, somebody like David and Johnny O and those guys were, you know, they were inventing those techniques as they went. 
you know, things like tapping the rear brake to lower the front end. And I know Bailey, I saw David like skim a set of whoops, you know, kind of manual them almost. And I guess it was probably 84. And I was like, Oh my God, what, what did he just do? I, you know, it's like, how is that even possible? Um, it, it, those guys were just amazing, you know? Yeah. I'd be interested to find out, uh, just how modern, a works bike would have felt you know what i mean like how you ride a 2014 uh crf 450 and then you step on to the uh the 85 cr 250 and uh although different power delivery considered just how how the bikes handled how like I'm, i gotta imagine those things stopped on a dime uh and were crisp um like no other It'd be really interesting to see, like, how close or how what what those guys had at their disposal uh, right before they went into the production era. It, it would be interesting to see. I mean, I've ridden plenty of older bikes, like I had, you know, a 1990 uh, recently. You know, and I'd ride them back to back with like an 05, 06, 07. Yeah. And it is the, the power on those old bikes is actually pretty good. I mean, even the 250s, are, they're still you know pretty quick, and I'm sure their works bikes were really awesome. The way you really notice it is in uh, like the chassis. Uh, that's the big difference is the way the bike feels. Those old bikes have a lot of flex built into that steel frame, yeah. and you feel the bike moving around and squirming under you, where you just don't feel that on a model. All these aluminum bikes are so stiff; we're all used to it now. That yeah. they they feel like they're carved out of a solid, you know, piece of machinery. And uh, those old bikes just have a kind of a loosey goosey feel to them. You know, I'm sure the works bikes. Um, probably still shared that because that's what people that's the way bikes were it's, everything was like that then, you know for sure uh let's let's go right back to your first ever uh real motocross racer bike i know uh you had some some trail bikes before uh you ended up getting this elsinore but the 1978 honda cr 250r uh what was your take on that bike and uh, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, long since uh, out of your garage but of your collection, is that one that you'd like to have back? I would love to have that bike back. And, you know, I sold it, I don't know, in the mid-80s or whatever for like $250. You know, now it's worth like three Gs or something crazy, those old bikes are. Yeah. I would love to have that bike. It was a, it was a cool, cool machine, um, very fast. You know, if you ride more of those bikes now, they're even, they're still fast. Um, they got plenty of power. Um, the suspension was terrible. Even then, I thought it was pretty terrible. Um, things like uh, you know, you go through a little bit of water and the brakes, those old drum brakes, the brakes would go completely away. I mean, they just didn't work. Uh, the clutch, you know, was a bear to pull, um, but it was fast. You know, that's the one thing I remember about that thing. It was like the first time I rode it, was like, oh my god, this thing is scary fast. Fair enough. Now let's uh, let's fast forward ten years to the 1988 YZ125. Uh, notice that you've 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 ridden both 125s and uh, the the like what would be considered the the big bike, uh, 250 250s and 450s uh, throughout owning bikes. Uh, so you, like uh, back in 1988, you owned a YZ125 and it's Z up in here in Canada. YZ125. Um, what was your take on that bike and uh, what what um, possessed you to uh, switch colors from Kawasaki in, in uh, also ha having a yeah. What was the, why, why did I get rid of my Kawasaki, is that what you said? Yeah, why did, first of all, why did you get rid of the, the 87 Cowie? And uh, what possessed you to get a uh, 88 uh, Yamaha? And what did you think about the bike? 
You know, well, it's actually um, a funny story. When I got rid of the 87 Kawasaki, I intended to go, uh, back in the old days, there was no internet, obviously, in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and we looked in a local, like, cycle trader, and I saw a guy who said he had an 88 for sale. And if you know anything back then, the 88 was an all-new bike, had the K3 motor and the yeah. new kips, and it was, like, a big improvement. My 87... It was a good bike, but it, it did not have cartridge forks, which is another big deal back then. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that the 88 was a big improvement. Um, so I, I sold I sold my 87, went out to this guy's house, uh, me and my buddy Jamie Connard. We show up, and the guy's got an 87 KX. He, he had listed it as an 88, but it was the exact same bike I had just sold. I was like, oh, my God. So I had no intention of getting the YZ. But... You know, back then again, there's no pictures. You couldn't see what you're going to buy. You drive two hours, get there, and it wasn't what you wanted. So we go to a uh, down the street to a Seven Eleven, get a uh, uh, like what was the? I think it was called the Cycling East or something back then. Look in the back, and some guy had an '88 YZ for sale, and it was only about 20 minutes from where we were in, down in uh, Southern Virginia at the time. And we said, well, let's go look at it. And we went over there. The guy had it in the back of his barn. He fired it up. It was uh, really crisp, nice shape, and I ended up buying that instead. So it was just, it was just like uh, lucky happenstance. I ended up with that bike. Fair enough. And uh, it performed well for you. It did. It, you know, the thing I liked about it: um, very uh, strong, punchy mid-range. Um, it the KX was had a wide power band, but it wasn't particularly powerful. Um, it was easy to ride, but not that fast. Um, and the YZ uh, had a much stronger hit to it. It was a real barky engine. It, it came on real strong off the line and hit hard in the middle. Uh, it didn't pull on top at all. It really was mid-range only, but uh, it had the cartridge forks, which was a big deal at the time. The suspension was much better than it was on my KX. The KX was, you know, pretty soft and you know, bottom yeah, it was like a mar- bike. Yeah, it was uh, the YZ was real nice. The only the only beef I had with that YZ was back then. If, I don't know if you've ever ridden in those old Yamahas, but they, the shifting was just it, it was atrocious. I mean, it's people who ride bikes now have no sense of just how quirky some of these old bikes were. It literally would not shift under power. You you would I would be having the throttle pinned, and I'm banging on the shifter with all my might to get it to grab the next gear. Hmm. I ended up bending two shift shafts coming out of the engine literally bending the shaft because I, I stomped on the shifter so hard to get it to shift. Um, so that was a, that was, on a 125 is particularly, that was a massive pain. Um, and at the time, actually, uh, uh, race tech came out with a shifter that for that bike, they ended up buying later. Um, the Dubok run ran and, uh, actually got disqualified cause it wasn't considered stock. Um, and then what it would do is it would actually move the shift point to the, um, the axle shaft going through the swing arm hmm. and it would give you like about eight inches of leverage on that thing and it would force it to shift. It was a pretty Rube Goldberg looking thing. Um, but uh, that cured the shifting problem. Other than that, it was a great little bike. No doubt. Uh, so what possessed you to get a 1987 Honda Fat Cat? Oh, no. Oh, the shame <laughs> of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh lordy, lordy, lordy! I, I should probably should never put that on the internet. But I um, <laughs> well, my funny thing: my neighbor um, bought a Yamaha Big Wheel 200 at the time, um, and 
we used to, there was a bunch of trails and stuff out near behind my house and he'd always ride around on that. And I rode it a couple of times and it was no race bike. Obviously it was slow as tar and the suspension was terrible, but it was actually pretty fun to ride. We'd ride it down at the Creek and you know, in the sand and everything. It was actually a pretty fun little, little bike. And I said, well, I, I think I'd want to get one of those. Um, and then Honda, of course, came out with one that was, uh, had electric start and it looked, uh, you know, a thousand times actually cooler than the BW, which was very cobby. Um, and I thought, oh my God, I'll one up my buddy. I'll go get this thing. We'll have these cool little fun little trail bikes to play around with. And, uh, it turned out to be the worst bike I've ever owned of any kind. It was just God awful. That thing. It was so slow. The suspension was terrible. Um, I remember one time I actually jumped it about maybe six inches off the ground and the forks bottom so hard it knocked my goggles off. I'm like, the, the thing was so terrible. What a piece of junk. I had it about, I don't know, four months and sold it. Wow. Well, it, it, uh, it at least had enough staying power for you to include it on your uh, history of bikes. And for anyone who would like to uh, look at um, all the bikes that you've ridden, uh, you've got some of the, the, the stock pictures of what, what it lo- would have looked like in the magazine as well as uh, what it looked like in your garage. It's a great little video. Uh, it's got that uh, awfully pre- repetitive uh, music that you've put into quite a few of those videos that uh, you've gotten uh, the uh, career pictures uh in which I, I love that song so very much um but uh yeah if anyone wants to look look at that video uh we'll go through a couple more uh, uh i'm sure uh, uh everyone's loving this part of the uh the the interview uh two more two more bikes i wanted to talk about uh one very close to my heart one uh, that came a little bit before my time we'll start off with the uh 1998 yzf 400 tell me a little bit about that beast Oh, that thing was cool. Um, the first time I rode one of those, I, I had a, a CR125 at the time, and a buddy of mine got one of the first ones that came out, and we were at a, a friend of mine's track, and I asked him to take a ride on it. And I was, I, I mean, it blew my mind like no motorcycle has ever done before. Because, you know, I grew up thinking four strokes were jokes. You know, we, we've, I've, had, I've had a couple XRs and fat cats and other four yes. strokes. And usually they were, you know, they were toys. They were fun for plonking around in the woods, but they weren't race bikes. And my first impression of that thing was a couple things. It was so smooth. Um, after riding a two-stroke, you get on that and it had a counterbalance or maybe there was like no vibration. And the motor just pulled and pulled and pulled. It was, uh, it was so powerful and smooth. It was just a fun bike. I, I always loved it at first sight when I, I, I had to have one. So I went out and sold my my uh, CR and, and and went and got one right away. Excellent. So and I, once you owned it, uh, was it a good bike for you for a long period of time? I know four strokes in their infancy were a bit of ticking time bombs. Did you have some horror stories uh, keeping that bike together? Not really, actually. Yeah, that's the thing about the Yamahas. They have. Um, Especially back then, they had uh, they carried a lot more oil in the tank. You know, it had like that separate oil chamber in the frame. In the frame, yeah. Um, yeah, it had a, a much more reliable uh, track history than, than the later ones did. But um, the the only problem I had with that thing in those days was uh, starting it. The starting drill was a nightmare. I remember I, 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 a couple times I was racing it, and you know, you at first especially I had a huge problem with stalling it because I was used to being on a two stroke. You come in and you know, I, I, you know, feather the clutch a little bit, and then you brake slide in, and then you know, snap the clutch and come out. And on the on that 400F, I would try that, and I keep stalling it. You know, the, the four stroke was you and had to good slow luck starting the turns. It. You, 
Yeah, yeah. The, it was just a different technique. It took a while to get used to that. And if you stalled it, you had to. I don't know. Have you ever tried to start one of those things before? Yeah. It, it was a nightmare. I mean, you had yeah. to find top dead center. Then you had to. There's a little lever on the bar. You had to click it, and then you had to give it a kick. And if you forgot to turn the the hot start on or something, it wouldn't start. I mean, you pretty much your your race was over if you stalled it. Um, totally. And yeah. The, the, I had an early four stroke from Kawasaki, and uh, if you stall that thing. After three laps, uh, you might as well just start pushing it because uh, the hot start wasn't doing much. Uh, it needed to be, yeah, you said top dead center. And, yeah, like unless you were a smooth operator, you're not getting that thing to fire. Exactly. And the other problem, too, was, you're, you you know, I grew up on two strokes where you, you blip the throttle. You know, when you when you kick it, you give it a little snap. Yeah. And if you did that, you flooded it. So you had exactly. to, at first, what, you know, I'd put my, you, you'd put your hand up on the brake master cylinder or something to prevent yeah. you from you know accidentally kicking it i mean it was a nightmare um, yeah that but the bike itself like, was awesome yeah. when it was funny. running it was great excellent and now since i you know me i'm a, a avid two-stroke guy uh i did race four strokes i admit that four strokes are definitely a more competitive racing machine but uh, at 25 years old, my budget uh, allows me to have some pretty crisp-looking two-strokes, and uh, which would uh, equal into uh, a pretty clapped-out four-stroke. So I've gone with uh, my 05 KX250, and you yourself had an 06, which uh, Jody Whitesells has gone, gone on the record by saying it has the most hard-hitting, unusable power band uh, that he's ever had. Do you agree? I, I do. That thing is a rocket. I had um, I had it and I rode it back to back with my 1990 CR500, and I think it hit as hard as that 500 did. It, it was that, that's a hard hitting motor. It's uh, it wasn't much good on a track. Uh, you know, I raced it a couple times, and it was a handful out there. It, it just would wear me out. But it was a uh, definitely a, a very snappy engine on that thing. Absolutely. What uh, what possessed you to grab that 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 bike? As it, it's not that long ago, only it's an eight year old machine. Um, I particular I love the way that bike runs. Uh, I've um, that's basically my my daily driver as far as uh, what I choose to ride. I like the fact that the two of us have both gone with the two thousand and four two thousand and three uh, um, Chevy Trucks Kawasaki motif, uh, which yep. uh, one of the local uh, actually ex, uh, Tech One Designs was able to uh, uh, kind of mock up a, a, a kit for me because uh, that kit is no longer available through uh, uh, I believe it was uh, Factory FX so they, they basically mocked one up for me with uh, I, I threw some Pulp MX uh, uh, sponsors on there and uh, yeah it's, it's a great looking bike awesome I still have some Chevy trucks decals I'll have to send to you I have I think a rear fender decal kit and stuff that gets that kit on my garage Excellent. So, what uh, what do you currently uh, own as far as a bike, and uh, what possessed you to go that way? Um, right now, I, the only thing I have in my stable is a dual sport. I got to kind of put around with. Um, mm-hmm. I'm between getting. I've been thinking seriously, seriously thinking about pulling the trigger on a, a the KTM 350. Um, I want something that's uh, the, the electric start is very appealing as I've gotten older. That's been something i'd like to get uh, the only the bike i'm riding right now i have a crfl um 250r yep and then next spring i'm thinking about getting uh the ktm 350 sxf 
that seems to be the hot ticket. I actually got to do a couple of laps on uh, my buddy's 350. And uh, if, a four, if a 450 is too hot and uh, 250F is too cold, uh, the 350 is just right. If you're going to use a three bears uh, analogy, um, it just it's got enough power to pull out of the corners, but you can rev it to the moon if you want to. You can you can ride it like a 250, but it's got that extra uh, power over the top. That uh, whereas most 250Fs fall off, it just keeps pulling. Exactly, and I've had I mean, I've had bunches of 450s and 250Fs. So I had every kind of size bike you can have. And- the last one I had was uh, I, I just sold my YZ two fifty two stroke a little about a while back. Um, that was an awesome bike, but I, I, the thought of having the electric start and I like the looks of those new KTM's and I've always been intrigued by the three fifty. And I, you're right, I think it's kind of the perfect size because the four fifty um, mostly I just play ride anymore. So the four fifty is kind of a handful, and the two fifty uh, you know struggles a little bit with my exceeding girth. So the three fifty is like a nice nice in between there. Yeah, absolutely. I find with the 250, even if you're just play riding, it makes you ride aggressively. Whereas the 450, you almost feel too lazy and not a really like usable power band. So I think you're you're making the right decision by going with the uh, the 350. Last couple questions before I let you go. I have had you on for an hour so far, so I hope that uh, it's I'm not uh, ex- exceeding my uh, my boundaries with you so far. No, no problem. I could bench race all night. It's fine. Perfect. Um, yeah, so um, last couple of questions I had was um, um, what race uh, that uh, what, what, which is your, your the best race you've ever witnessed in person professional race <coughs> wow that's a good question that I've seen in person uh, I was there for uh, probably the most impressive racing display was Bud's Creek and I guess it was 04 <clears throat> when um, when James came James out. Stewart went down, yeah, he, when he went down the first Steve turn, Steve Boniface takes him out in the first corner. Yeah, and he 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 was cutting through the pack like it was unbelievable. I remember thinking, you know, wow, I wonder how far he can get. And then he was just like cutting through the guys like you know ten at a time. It was crazy to watch. That was yeah. probably one of the most impressive ones. Um, and the other one I would probably list up there was. Uh, the motocross nations at 2007 at Bud's Creek as well, when uh, Villapoto just smoked everybody on that 250F. That was that was mind blowing. It was so awesome. The whole event was amazing, but that was like the icing on the cake. You know, watching him kick everybody's butt was pretty amazing. That was incredible. That that one really stands out for me. I think uh, we're like minded in that one. I remember uh, growing up, I would have been well right around the tender. I think me and James are maybe a year or two apart. Uh, but I remember watching the the great outdoors of that video and just watching James rip through the pack and then eventually stuff Brock Sellards in the corner to take the first place position uh, and just like rip away like he's he's halfway up straight away before Brock even gets out of that corner and uh, for those who haven't seen it please go watch that one it's one of my favorites uh, as far as and as well as that happens to be uh, a day that's very fun uh, in the hearts or in the heart of one Steve Mathis because uh, earlier that day uh, he uh, wrenched his rider to victory uh, who would then uh, later on DNF the second moto Tim Ferry um, of all the videos that you've posted whether you've had to take them down or whether you've uh, um, whether like they, they, they still uh, remain up there today 
Uh, of those races that you've you've had either watched on TV late at night at around two o'clock in the morning on ESPN two, which one would you have uh, much much rather been in the stands for? Number one. Oh, I'd like to have seen it. I would like to have been at Anaheim nineteen ninety when Bradshaw, um, you know, absolutely held the thing wide open around the outside to rip the whole shot and then walk away from it. I would I'd like to have been there for that because that was an awesome, awesome race. Excellent. Well, you know what, man? Uh, I, I know we could do this all night, but uh, I think our our listeners would uh, uh, would much prefer a part two rather than a five hour conversation uh, with us. <laughs> Plus, it's a lot easier to get the um, my uh, uh, my software to condense this into a file size that's uh, fun for uh, for YouTube to uh, or I- iTunes to accept. So we're gonna cut it off in an hour. I, I thank you so much for taking some time with me tonight. Uh, really appreciate it as uh, it's getting into uh, almost eleven o'clock at night uh, over there and on the the East Coast. Uh, wish you uh, a great rest of your week. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll touch base once again. And uh, thanks again for taking some time today to uh, take us down memory lane with uh, some of the the greatest archives that this sport has to offer. I appreciate it, and again, and thanks for having me on. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Absolutely. Right on, Tony. You have a good night. Hey, you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.